following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. It's time for the sermon, right? I'm in the right place at this point. I watched um, probably 12 straight hours of football yesterday, and I think it may have scrambled my brain a little bit, so I apologize. Uh, It is wonderful to be with you. We are in the second week now of a series in the Gospel of Luke and launching Advent here in Luke's Advent portion of his Gospel. We're going to be in Luke actually from now until Easter and really excited to dive in to the Gospel of Luke and take a deeper look at Jesus together. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can open it up to Luke chapter 1. Or you can follow along on the screen as I read to us from Luke 1, verses 5 through 25. Listen now to God's word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and and great fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering about his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and they all rem- and he remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months... She kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. Friends, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word this morning. We're grateful for this announcement of the birth of John, the one who would prepare the way. And Lord, we ask that you would prepare our hearts now as we come before your word during this season of Advent as we look forward to your return 
And Lord, daily as we depend on you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Joy and I watched a a movie the other night called Reversal of Fortune. It's kind of an old movie, 1990, I think. And it's based on the Alan Dershowitz book, um, a true story about a reversal of, um, of a conviction of a man who may or may not have been, been wrongly convicted. You'll have to see the, the movie to decide for yourself. But it's a fascinating story about kind of this legal reversal, appeal brought up to the state Supreme Court, and that was reversed. Now, of course, there's um, other reversals that we can think about. You know, some of the most prominent, famous ones really in the last couple of years have been the reversal of Roe versus Wade. But reversals are present with us all the time. Friday night, I got to go to the Smithson Valley versus A&M Consolidated football game, high school playoff football game. And man, what a fantastic game that was. Now, my allegiances were a little divided. Robert Tuton coaches at Smithson Valley, and my friend Ben Haley's son plays at A&M Consolidated. So I had to kind of be cheering for both sides. But it was an amazing game. In fact, for really most of the first quarter, Consolidated kind of had all of the momentum. And then Smithson Valley picked off a pass and ran it back for a touchdown, and there was a reversal of the momentum. And then later in the game, Consolidated's quarterback made this incredible scrambling throw, picked up about 60 yards, another reversal of the momentum. And then Smithson Valley, really led by the Teuton-coached offensive line, creating all of the holes, reversed course again and ended up winning the game. It was really fantastic. It really is one of those things where this is why we watch sports. There's so much wonderful drama here. And, and that's what drama is built on, that idea of reversals. I mean, any good story is kind of built on a series of reversals, isn't it? Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, reversal. Boy gets girl back again, reversal again, and they all live happily ever after. That's really kind of the basic backbone of most narrative. And Luke, as Mike reminded us last week, is a wonderful historian. But he's also a good storyteller. And so we're finding some good reversals even in this passage here. In fact, it's full of them. We're going to focus on three of them this morning, ways that we see reversals happening here in Luke chapter 1. And the first is really the one that's probably the plainest to everyone, the one that's kind of just standing out on top of the text most easily to be seen, and that is the reversal of a situation, a situational reversal. There is a family longing to have a child who cannot, and then God gives them a child. I mean, just listen to these verses one more time. Here's what we read in verse 7. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. But then listen to verse 12. This is what the angel says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son promise of reversal. And then that promise comes to completion in verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Isn't that beautiful? Just the simple story of God reversing the situation of this couple. They wanted a child. They prayed for a child and God in his mercy gave them a child. Now it's great for us to look and see that beautiful, simple story of reversal. It's also a helpful time, I think, for us to ask a few questions about prayer. What does this passage actually teach us about praying? Well, let's start with what it doesn't teach us, and maybe this is bad news to some of you, is that this passage does not teach us that we will get 
whatever we want when we pray for it. Now, some, and I know some of you probably have prayed, maybe even are now praying, Lord, give us a child. And that has been hard. And that is a good and true longing. So does this passage tell us that every time we pray for something good, God will give it? Maybe even if we pray for it in the right way, if we tag on, you know, in Jesus' name, then maybe God will answer that request. Well, unfortunately, no. This passage is not a promise that God will always give us what we want. In fact, I love the way that one commentator says it. He says this, Scripture reveals requests answered immediately, requests answered eventually, and requests denied for a better way. There are times where God, in his wisdom, actually knows more than we do about what would be good for us. And he delays those questions and answers them in a different way. So scripture does not tell us here that there's always a promise that God is going to give us whatever we want when we ask for it. But friends, what it does call us to expect is that we should always expect God's kindness. God always acts in kindness toward his children. When his children come to him and they make requests, God is never harsh. He is never unkind. He never just pushes them away. He always addresses them in his kindness. Jesus tells us this later on in Luke. Listen to what he says in Luke 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Friends, our Father loves to give good gifts to His children. So though we should not expect that every prayer will be answered exactly the way that we want it, we should always expect that God will answer us in His kindness. So what do we do with those two things? Well, here's one, here's one suggestion. Is that we get to pray without caveat or presumption. Is that when you pray, pray without caveat or presumption. Here's what I mean. You don't have to say, Lord, we really would love children, you know, if it's your will, but your will be done. But, you know, if that's the thing that you want us to do and we understand, if it's not, you know, oftentimes we're doing that all the time, these gymnastics in prayer about hedging our bets all of the time. No, you can pray for what you desire and ask, the God, ask God to give you the good desires of your heart. That's okay. But then open your hands and hold them loosely. And allow God to answer you and that prayer without presumption. Allow God to do the interpreting. Allow God to do the work of giving you, in his kindness, those good things that he has planned for you. All right, let's move on to the second piece. Because we do see that situational reversal. It's beautiful. It lets us know something about prayer. But there's actually something deeper going on here as well. In fact, I would say there is a cosmic reversal going on in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. I want you to look again just kind of at that verse 7, or let me read it to you. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, but they had no child. Now that is a fascinating phrase, is that they were both righteous before God, they walked blamelessly before God, but they had no child. Let's take that apart, because we need to actually first define what we mean by righteousness. This could be a tricky kind of word in the Bible, right? Is that the Bible actually tells us that there are none who stand before the Lord with their own righteousness that enables, to, enables us to stand in his holy presence. 
There are none of us who have an earned righteousness enough for the Lord to say, you know what, you've done everything, it's all good, you can stand in my presence now. Human beings are born with an absence of righteousness, and we need God to give us his righteousness. That is the beauty of the gospel that Paul lays out in Romans chapter 3, that there is a righteousness that comes from God to us, imputed to us, by faith in Jesus and his work. So that's the first understanding of righteousness. There's another misunderstanding of righteousness that Jesus deals with all of the time with the Pharisees. And that's the idea that, you know what, if my life outside looks righteous enough, then maybe it won't really matter what's inside. Jesus is always condemning the Pharisees for this kind of thought. We call this moralism, is that if I do all of the right things, maybe then God will accept me. But there is a third form of righteousness in the way that the Bible even talks about it that is good and right and true for those who have been forgiven by Jesus, is that those who have been washed clean by his blood actually desire to follow him. We desire to live our lives as a response to the great love and grace that God has shown us, and we want to follow in righteousness, in holiness, in justice, in a life that actually looks like Jesus. And that's what's going on here. These are two people who know the Lord's grace and mercy, and they want to live out their lives as a response to that grace and mercy in righteousness and in justice in what they do. But there's also another interesting irony going on here. They are righteous and childless. During this time in which they live, the prevailing thought would have been, you know what, if you are righteous, then God will bless you externally. Unfortunately, that thought still lives on in our world as well. This idea that external blessing is actually the, the, the key. It actually shows the world that, we have living, that we're living righteously and that God is accepting us. That is a lie now, and it was a lie then. But people believe this idea that, you know what, if you are righteous, it will be displayed in the blessing that you are given. And the biggest blessing you could have been given during this time was lots of children. And so most Jews of the day would have looked on people like Zechariah and Elizabeth and thought because they are childless, something must be wrong with their life. And for Luke to say together they were righteous before the Lord and childless would have been mind-blowing to a first century Jew. But you know, it's also a great clue to us of something that's going on under the surface. Because though their sin was not what led them to being childless, sin certainly is. They, like we, live in a broken world, a world that is broken by sin, a world where now, because of the sin of our original parents, Adam and Eve, and the sin that we still bear, our world is a place now where parents who want children can't have them. Our world is a place now where relationships are broken. Our world is a place now where friends and family members die. Our world is a place now where we mourn, where we question, where it's hard for us, and that's the world they're living in. But friends, look at what's going on here. This little reversal, this little um, uh, situational reversal is actually hinting at a cosmic reversal that's taking place. Is that God, in his reversing of this situation, is hinting that he is reversing things cosmically, that he is reversing the curse, that he is about to do something that is going to change the state of the cosmos. 
that Jesus, God's son, is going to come and deal not just with the little in particular sins in people's lives, yes, those, but the big cosmic things to put the big pieces back together. And what we're seeing here in Zechariah and Elizabeth in the announcement of the birth of John is a little hint at the beautiful cosmic renewal that's coming about. I've watched this, this television show. Some of you, I think, have seen this as well. Um, a fascinating show called The Man in the High Castle. And this show is actually set in 1950s America, but here's the catch. It's 1950s America, but the Axis powers have won World War II. And the eastern half of the United States is controlled by the Nazis, and the western half of the United States is controlled by the Japanese, and that's where Americans in the 50s live. They live under either Nazi or Japanese control. But there's this small group, kind of burgeoning group of rebels that has got a hold, gotten a hold of these underground films. And these underground films are actually news clips of a different reality. They're able to see this interesting kind of newsreel about D-Day, about the Allied powers actually winning World War II. And this alternate reality, these films that give them a vision of a different future begin to inspire them to actually change. That's what's going on here actually with Zechariah and Elizabeth, is that we are getting an alternate reality, a vision of an alternate reality, a little film clip of God doing something much bigger than even just what he's doing in this family. And friends, that's actually what Advent gives us as well. We get to spend some time four weeks before Christmas where we slow our hearts down even though they've been on full speed at Hobby Lobby to tell you that it's been Christmas for the last three months we get to slow our hearts down and anticipate and wait and sit and see this little glimpse that gives us longing for what is happening in the world, for what Jesus is returning to do in the cosmos. So there's the cosmic renewal. We get the situational renewal, cosmic renewal, and what's that supposed to do to us? Well, it's supposed to bring about personal renewal in our hearts. And that's really the third piece here, personal renewal. Look at me, uh, with me, if you will, at verse 17 again. The angel tells this to John, I mean to Zechariah. He says that John will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of ju to the just to make ready for the, for the Lord, excuse me, a people prepared. There's two really important um, concepts and words in that. That John is going to actually prepare the people and that he's going to turn their hearts. So let's look at those two. What does preparation mean? What do we mean by that? Well, actually, Luke is picking up here. This angel is really quoting from Malachi chapters 3 and 4. Listen to the way that the prophet Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, what he says about the Messiah. Listen to this, Malachi 3 and 4. Behold, I will send my messengers, and he will prepare the way before me. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Is that John the Baptist, this last Old Testament prophet, comes to prepare the way. Isaiah picks up on the same language. He says that, the, that there will be one who comes before the Messiah to prepare the way. And we read in Luke 2 that this is actually what's said of John. That quote from Isaiah chapter 40, that he has come to prepare the way for the Lord. So what does it look like for a people to be prepared? What does it look like for the way to be prepared for the Lord? Well, it's that our hearts would be prepared, isn't it? 
for us to be prepared, for the way to be prepared, for us to really be ready for the Lord's return, it means that our hearts might actually be prepared. Like many of you, we have been decorating for Christmas. We have this beautiful tradition in the McCollum household where on the the Friday after Thanksgiving, we decorate our Christmas tree and just picture a roaring fire and everyone wearing their Christmas best and some hot chocolate or some hot cider, a, a beautiful dog posing for a picture next to the fire. All right, now get that out of your head and I'll tell you what it really looks like. It usually looks like this, is that we get up excited about things on Friday morning and then we start arguing about where we're going to buy our Christmas tree. And we argue because I want our Christmas tree to be imbued with all kinds of just rich depth and personal connection. And I would like to talk to the lumberjack that cut down my Christmas tree. And Joy would like not to pay $1,000 for a Christmas tree. And so in begins the conflict. And so what normally happens is that after we argue about where we're going to go to get the Christmas tree, we finally land on the place, and then, of course, five people making a decision. That's super easy, isn't it? And so we argue about which Christmas tree we're going to get. And by the time we get home and we put the Christmas tree up, we're so grumpy that we decide, you know what, let's just do it tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes... And we get out all of the stuff, and we get out the lights, and we put the lights on first, and of course, the lights don't work. So then we have to tear the lights all off, and then one parent yells at another, ch- at one child to get off his phone, and then it, we decide, you know what, this isn't even worth it, we're too grumpy to do it today, let's put it off till tomorrow. And then day three finally comes, and we throw all the ornaments up on the tree, and we breathe a sigh of relief that we don't have to do this again until next year. We have prepared our tree. We haven't really prepared our hearts. And that is what we're being called to do, is to prepare our hearts for the Lord's coming. In fact, again, this is what Advent Advent calls us to, is to spend some time actually preparing for the Lord. That when he comes, which we are told we don't know that day or hour, he might actually come and find us prepared. And part and parcel to the preparation is the calling to turn. The angel tells Zechariah, John will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. He will turn the people to the Lord. That word in Greek means exactly what you think it means, is exactly what it means in English, is to go from facing one direction to facing the opposite direction. To turn from what normally motivates us, to turn from what our hearts cling to so often, and to turn to Jesus instead. To turn to actually filling, uh, focusing all of our time on filling our stomachs and our stockings, to turn to actually being filled by the Lord. To turn from what motivates us usually, which is the relentless pursuit of my own satisfaction, and to turn to service, pouring myself out, devotion, longing, love for God and love for neighbor. It's the letting go of the trappings of this world so that we might actually turn to Jesus instead and to ready our hearts for his return. There's a story that I read. The the biblical commentator Frederick Dale Bruner talks about a friend of his, a pastor friend of his, who tells this story of a Saturday night, which of course none of us have ever waited till Saturday night to be working on a sermon. Uh, But a Saturday night, he's working on a sermon and his young daughter comes in and she says, Daddy, can we play? Will you play with me? 
And he says, oh, sweetie, you know, unfortunately, I'm working on this sermon. I can't play right now. I tell you what, give me one hour. I'll finish up, and then we can play. And she says, okay. And she starts to walk out toward the door. But as she gets to the door, she does a U-turn, a reversal. And she walks back to her dad, and she says, she says you know, whenever, whenever we're finished, you know, I'm going to give you the biggest, best hug you've ever had. And he says, okay, great, one hour. And then she just walks up to him and gives him the hug bone-crushing, warm, amazing hug. And he says, sweetie, I thought you said I wasn't going to get the hug until I was finished. And she says, yeah, but I just wanted you to get a little taste of what's coming. (laughs) That really is what we settle into in Advent, isn't it? A little taste of what's to come. The little hug from the Lord that says, you know what? I'm doing something not only in your life, but in the world. And I'm calling you now to turn and follow me so that you might look forward to the time to come when I'm going to make all things new, when there will be no more mourning, when there will be no more weeping, when there will be no more frustration, when there will be no more longing. There will simply be the Lord. Friends, that is what we wait for. That is what we prepare for. That is what we turn toward. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, We're grateful for these words from Luke, for this proclamation of the birth of John who will come and prepare your people for the coming of the Messiah. Lord, as we read, as we meditate, as we celebrate this morning, we pray that our hearts would be prepared. Knowing that you have come, we ask that you would prepare us now for your return. Knowing that you have come to begin this cosmic project of setting all things right, we ask that you would come quickly to finish that project. And Lord, maybe most importantly, in the time in which we wait, we ask you to be at work in our hearts. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.